We're all in church. As you would expect, we're still through Acts. So, all scripture is, is equal. You know, it's all God, it's all God, God breathed. Um, there's no tier in a scripture. We don't, we don't, nothing, nothing's taught that, that there's a tier one. Tier one set of scripture, you know, Genesis 1, John 3, 16 would be your tier ones, and I don't know, Nahum chapter 3, verses 2 would be, you know, your tier 10. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing taught like that. But, here comes but, due to, um, and I was trying to think of, of, of a word for this, and I think it's heritage, due to a heritage of certain passages, certain verses being taught, there is, uh, for certain, you know, when certain passages are taught and certain verses are read, just a weightiness to them because of that heritage through centuries, through, you know, uh, through, through millennia of, of the regulus uh, cadence and, and powerful nature of these being taught um, in churches all around the world. And it struck me that, you know, some of these verses that we read, that we take for ourselves, have, have transformed millions of lives when they've, when they've read them. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. People have read that, tens of thousands of people have read that verse, have, have heard that verse in church, and it's transformed their life. That verse has changed their life. That was the key that unlocked in them the truth of who Jesus was. When someone was uh, listening to a preach or reading their Bible in Romans 8, where it talks about being more than conquerors, that how nothing can separate us from the love of God, tens of thousands of people have read that passage, have heard that passage being preached, and it has given them a deep, overwhelming understanding that nothing they can do, good or bad, can make their Father God love them any more or less. People have been sitting in on a, on a cow concert and heard Luke 2 being preached about the birth of Christ, the Christmas story, and they may have heard it for the twelfth time, but that particular time, They've come to Christ, come to a realisation of what God did for his children in bringing Jesus to the earth. There's that heritage, there's that weight. And it's just an interesting thought that the, the passages that we read, and, it, and for, for some of us here, I'm sure, you're thinking now of a, of a passage, a verse, that really struck your heart, that saw, uh, made you see God differently, deepened your relationship to him or even unlocked your heart and you started your journey with him. Why do I say this? Because the passage that we're looking at now and we're continuing Paul's, uh, Paul's journey through Greece, we're looking as he goes into Athens. Over the centuries, over the, uh, over the time within the Christian church, this passage... Uh, for, for a number of reasons, has really been the foundation in teaching of evangelism, of engaging with culture, of bringing Jesus to a certain group of people and how you do that, how you sometimes alter the approach to engage with a certain group of people, with a certain culture, 
And it's the longest, actually, um, excerpt that we have of Paul's preaching. So there's a depth there of Paul's thinking, Paul's rationale, Paul's rhetoric. So over the centuries, this passage has been preached and it's inspired people to go on mission. It's inspired people to get on a ship and sail somewhere across the world. It's inspired people to talk to their next-door neighbour about Jesus. So no pressure. (laughs) So let's start start reading. uh, So it's Acts 17, verses uh, 16 to the end. So we'll start. While Paul was waiting, it'll come up here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. We'll stop there. Don't worry, I'm not going to stop after every verse. I'm not going to be. Okay, I'll get you home for lunch. But this verse, this verse. Well, in so this is the NIV translation. There's, there's many. There's different translations of the Bible. Um, I'm sure some of you know. The ESV, um, the ESV says, says this. This is how they translate this opening verse. Now, Paul, uh, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, as I was preparing, God really drew, me, drew myself to that opening, opening verse. That word provocation, Paul's spirit in him was provoked. It's an unusual choice of words, provocation. Provocation is quite an unusual choice of words because it's associated with um, normally anger. You know, you're provocated to uh, get into a rage or to hit someone or to argue. That provocation is usually... um, associated with a negative emotion. But in a dictionary, it's, it's really, you know, it is normally associated with a negative emotion, but in its truest sense, it's to incite a strong emotion. To be provoked is to incite in you or in, or in someone a strong emotion. And before... You know, we can get. I wanted to get into you know some of the great things that Paul can teach us about evangelism, about reaching a certain group of people or individuals. Some of the things he did, some of the things he didn't do that we can be taught about. I was really struck that what needs to come first before any good best practices on evangelism, any good preachers, any good seminars or talks. We need to talk a little about provocation. And, and, and Keith touched upon this yes, uh, last week when he talked about having that conviction, that passion. That's where it needs to start. Because if you haven't got that, if your spirit is not provoked, then it's just, we might as well shut up shop. There's no point me preaching about evangelism. We can get best practices and theory, and I, and I speak this to myself because my spirit in me, my human spirit, at the moment it's not easily provoked as, it sh- as I want it to be. 
You can imagine Paul's spirit was easily provoked. He walked into Athens and it was provoked by the idolatry, by the statues, by, the, by, their, by their misdirected efforts of religion and worship. You can imagine every conversation Paul had, every situation he was in, on his missionary journeys, his spirit was easily provoked. So friends, I just wanted to call that out. Are we provoked out of love for people? Does our love for people provoke us enough to speak about the gospel, to speak about our Jesus, about our faith? Does the injustice of a situation give us an indignation and provoke us to speak truth and to act? No, I don't want this to come across as burden, as, as, as critique. But just as a reflection. The Spirit is the one that needs to convict us of this. The Holy Spirit is the one that needs to empower us in this. But I pray for myself, for all of us, that we have spirits in us that are easily provoked because of our love, because of our compassion, because of our um, uh, uh, just na- uh, because of our sense of justice, that we see situations and want to speak truth in. Actually, uh, <laughs> I didn't. I was. I'm mean, about doing this, and it's just the spirit has asked me to. Can we, if you're able to, can we just stand up and just, and just as, as a, uh, just individuals, can we just pray for this? Can we pray out, as we've got that verse behind us, can we pray as a church that we will be followers of Christ with our spirits easily provoked out of love, out of justice, out of compassion? Raise your voices, church. This is where it starts. This is where it starts out of love for people, to be provoked enough to speak about Jesus, convicted in our spirit to spread the good news. It's not about best practices. It's not about theory. It's not about uh, uh, what's gone before, but it's about the spirit convicting us, provoking us to speak and to pray into people's lives about Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. May we be a church known to be easily provoked, and may that be a good thing, easily provoked to love people, to meet people where they are. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. If anyone has anything on their heart they want to just, they want to pray out now, please, uh, please feel free to do so. Yes, Lord, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Yes, Lord, I pray you'd move us from a state of indifference, Lord God, but you'd move us by your Spirit. It would be 
be pro provocated, we'd have the provocation of the Spirit, the Lord, that we would not uh, see this world, Lord God, we, we can't make a difference, but Lord, that we would know that we have the answer, Lord God, that we, we have the, the reason for life, Lord. we have the purpose of life in, in us, Lord God, that we cannot be silent, Lord Jesus, Lord. So I pray, stir each one of us, stir myself, Lord God, that I would see the idols around, Lord God, and be stirred to speak out, to share the, the truth, Lord God. Lord, do this. Amen. Thank you, church, for your obedience in that. Okay. So that was first 16. <laughs> let's, uh, so we'll read, read, let's read a few more verses. We're going to read verses 17 to, to 21 now. So, um, so Paul, yeah, Paul was greatly distressed see a city was full of all idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. 
A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to, your ear, uh, to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So we're going to have a bit of philosophy 101. So I don't want it to feel too much like we were at school. But uh, it mentions there um, Epicureans and Stoics. And uh, the reason why I just wanted to delve in a bit into um, some of what those two groups of people believed is because there's quite a few parallels to, uh, to those two groups, to the people that we meet and people that we have a relationship to today. You know, we don't go around calling them, you know, Epicureans and Stoics, but some of their you know, characteristics, beliefs and, uh, and attributes, you know, are, are very similar. So, the Stoics... The Stoics, their road to happiness, their, um, their idea of a contented life was all around self. You know, it was around self-preservation, self-sufficiency. You know, to be a good Stoic, you would be fiercely independent and still, uh, still hungering after, you know, self uh, Building up your self-worth, your self-wisdom, your self—you um, um, know—your self-sufficiency and uh, and self-knowledge within uh, a rule-based uh, and structure uh, and a framework way of living. They liked um, a structured, um, a structured worldview to be able to to live through, but very much focused on their self. Uh, deep thinkers uh, could be akin to sort of mathematicians um, or uh, physicists. Whereas they actually also, no, last point, they, within all of this, they still saw a sense of, of fate, of, of karma, that their focus on themselves was due to, well, it's all been governed by, by fate, by karma anyway. So the most logical thing to do is just focus on ourself, uh, making sure that I'm not relying on, on anything else as much as possible, um, as everything is anyway governed by, by, by fate, by, by karma. When we think about these you know, types of people today, people that are fiercely independent, very big on self-sufficiency, we, we probably meet these people and in their hearts of hearts, they're probably quite tired, quite fatigued, quite burdened not willing to put much faith or stock in other people or other institutions, but keeping that fiercely independent sense of self. They're probably likely very tired, very fatigued. Epicureans, um, on the other hand, and, and I, say, I should have said at the start, it's not exhaustive, there's, there's a lot more deeds to hear, but this is just a fairly brief overview. Epicureans, uh, very much around pleasure, you know, all you can, all, all that there is, is what we see around us, what we can detect with our five senses. You know, before the Enlightenment, these guys back in, um, you know, before before Christ and, and the early first century, they were 
they were thinking in the lines of atoms and all we are is a collection of atoms bouncing together that when we die disperse. You know, this isn't, this is, this is, this, that kind of thinking is very old, you know, it's, it's, it's Greek Epicurean thinking. So they were all around, you know, if we're just here by blind chance by nature, let's try and get as much enjoyment and pleasure from this as, as possible. Let's try and remove as much pain, anxiety and stress from our lives as we can and really get after quick fixes, anything that can fill that void um, in us so that we can just, um, as much as possible, however simple it might be, just have a pleasurable life. We think about these people today, people that are trying to fill a void, trying to get a quick fix. A lot of times in their hearts of hearts can feel quite empty because what they're trying to look for, what they're trying to get, what they're trying to attain to just never satisfies them wholly. It's, it's, it's temporary, it's never permanent. So we have two groups of people here, Stoics and Epicureans, two major strains of Greek philosophy. That if we think about their attributes and, and what they believed, we can come to quite a good conclusion that in their hearts of hearts, just as today, they would either feel tired or empty, or both. Jim, Jim Kerry, the, uh, the actor... He, he famously said, I think if anyone's done an alpha course, you probably know where I got this from. But Jim Carrey said, I wish, I wish everyone could become rich and famous and do and get everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that that is not the answer. Freddie Mercury said similar sentiments and, and many, many people have said who have attained a certain level of wealth and fame and renown that in their experience, it's not the answer. So, hold on to that. People that we're speaking to, people that don't know uh, Jesus, perhaps, their hearts of hearts are empty, are tired, are fatigued. And, you know, Lizzie, Lizzie, what Lizzie sang as well, calling people home. That, that's, such, that's such a simple summation of... of, of of what we're doing when we're talking about Jesus. Calling people home. Calling people home. So, I want you to have a look now at some specifics of what, what Paul did. What did Paul do in these situations with the Athenians and, and what didn't he do? So if we take verse 22 uh, to, to the end of the chapter, so this is really Paul's, um, Paul's being put in front um, of the... Um, uh, Areopagus, and this is actually a court. It's a, it's a high court, and and Paul's could be seen to be defending. He's he's defending his his beliefs, and this is what he says. I see, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own po uh, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the defined being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. As I said, this, was, this actually in Acts is, is the fullest account that we have of of Paul's preaching, there's some really interesting things that Paul, Paul does, that Paul brings out, and actually some interesting things that he, he doesn't do, that I think will be good for us to, uh, to take on board. So, what did he do? Well, first of all, he went to them. He went to them. It's, 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 it's fairly simple, you know, at, near the uh, beginning of this passage, we hear that he started out in the synagogue, and then he went out into the marketplace. As, as, as we've seen through other passages in Acts, Paul's mode of operation would be to go to a, a city, to a town, to go to the synagogue and, and preach and teach with the Jewish uh, population of that, of that place. And in this, in this uh, instance, God-fearing Greeks who wanted to know more. But then he went out into the marketplace. And sure, the marketplace was another area in the Athenian world that people would expect to hear some sort of debating, some philosophy going on, um, and some level of preaching and teaching. But what was also um, specific to the Athenians is that they, they had a certain level of tolerance for foreign gods. But Paul would have been aware that there was a cost involved of coming out of the synagogue and going into the marketplace. And that cost was, he, and, and they seem quite polite in the passage, but the Areopagus where he was taken was a court of law. It was a high court. Many, many commentators would, would be of, of an opinion when, when they're looking at this that Paul was in, in fact having to defend, having to justify in a court of law what he was preaching about in the marketplace. And there could have been, there wasn't, he walked away, but there could have been some serious consequences as Paul had experienced in other towns of maybe imprisonment, of beating and of violence. But it's an interesting uh, difference of Paul in the synagogue, surrounded by people that may not necessarily have agreed with his point of view, but he had a license to preach. In that setting, he was ex there was an expectation that you would hear other ideas, other, um, other religious notions, other religious concepts. 
And, you know, it can, if, if I think about me personally, if someone comes along on a Sunday and, and as a visitor, well, you've come to church. I've got a bit of license to talk to you about Jesus. You've come to a carol concert. Well, I can talk to you about Jesus. There's that license that we feel comfortable in, in uh, that's given to us because people may come to us. But in the workplace, at school, with neighbours, we can feel, and it can sometimes be a bit British, that we are maybe imposing ourselves, that we haven't been given the license to talk to them about Jesus, that they haven't given us their permission for us to talk about the best news in the world, and that we may feel they're more comfortable to do that when maybe they come to a church-related event. Now, of course, there's sensitivity and wisdom in this. But I, I, I want to try and walk in this of not waiting to be asked. And yeah, it might not, might not go completely to plan all the time. I might get a bit of a, a sneer or a shake of the head or say, I don't like talking about religion, let's not talk about it. Well, then I know I won't talk to that person, but I've got other friends I've got other people that I speak to at work. That provocation, how prepared am I to put myself out there? To not wait to be asked in places where we haven't necessarily been given a license, given permission. But if we're convicted, if we're provoked, if we believe this is the best news in the world, I want it to come out of me. I do. It's not, it's, not in the, it's not at the moment, on a daily basis. But I try and look for opportunities with people that I meet. Not waiting to be asked first. But countering this, balancing this out, what Paul didn't do, and what we, we shouldn't do, is, is strike any kind of superior tone that we have found enlightenment. We have found, um, we have found this, um, we, we have found this higher level of thinking, and and you are in, uh, you know, uh, you know, you who don't know Jesus are inferior, and, and let me tell you from my superior high place what you need to know and how you need to change your life. We've got life transforming message. But we should never try and strike or be in conversations where we're taking a superior tone or, or, or approach. And also, and some of this is just wording, but some, we, we sometimes think of, I'm going to bring Jesus to this nation. I'm going to bring God to this person. Like he's something that we can just put in hand luggage or put in our pocket and, and take around with us. God's already there. God's already there. They've probably experienced God, and they don't even know it. Our job is to help them in their ignorance, to open up their eyes, to help open up their eyes, to direct their eyes. You know, when I was when I was thinking about this, I thought back to who's seen um, Great Expectations? Any adaption? I'm thinking of like the 1940s one, the black and white. You know, get a you know forty cinema clip in for you. I should have, but okay. So great expectations. There's Pip, who's the main character, 
And his love interest throughout his life, throughout the film, is Estella. And Estella um, has been raised by this lady called Miss Havisham. And Miss Havisham is bitter, manipulative. She's, um, she, she's, uh, she's just got, you know, she's just dark. She's got a very dark persona, twisted. And, and Estella is raised in her own image. Estella has been raised literally to manipulate men because Miss Havisham does not like men. And we see at the end of the film, Estella is in this great big house. And she is that product of Miss Havisham. She is happy. She's, 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 she's um, bound herself in darkness, in a decaying, decrepit house. And Pip, out of his immense love for her, goes into that house. And Pip doesn't bring anything, practically. Doesn't bring a lantern. Doesn't bring a torch. Doesn't bring any words. He goes in there and he rips open the curtains. And he uh, pounds down the boarded up windows. And he lets the light in. He lets the light in. That's how we should see it. We're not bringing Jesus to people. We are letting the light into people's lives that's already there, that surrounds them, that they've maybe already experienced, but they haven't been able to put their finger on it. We are casting their eyes, helping, helping them cast their eyes towards Jesus, to the light that is already around them. The second thing that, uh, that Paul did was he used cultural references. We see in a verse... Oh, I better speed up. I've just seen the time. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> um, what, does, what does Paul do? So Paul, Paul looks at cultural references. Verse 20... I did write it down here. Verse 28. Um, yeah, in verse 28, Paul says... For in him we live and move and have our being. And he also says, we are his offspring. Both of those came from Greek poets. Now, there's nothing particularly, you know, he could have found dozens of references in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, that say things like, we are God's children, or um, in God we, we, you know, in God we have our life. We 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 have everything that we, we we do. Our whole being is in God. He could have easily found stuff in the Old Testament in the, in in the Jewish Bible um, that so that had that sentiment for those two things. But he chose those cultural references to engage. And it, and it's this this phrase of "show me you know me." It's it's sometimes used in business, but "show me you know me." Show that person, show that group of people you've taken the time to understand what makes them tick. What are their interests? You know, people talk about cultural references, and yeah, it's you know easy. You know, we could have a, a month of movies and using movies to explain God's truth, and there's aspects of God's love in certain movies. Yeah, that's all. You know, using a particular song lyric, or you know, those cultural references, all good and you know, good ways to engage. But it's more than that. It's about showing people you know them. Showing people that you know them, that you've taken the time to understand them so you can meet them where they're at. 
and also then acknowledging their attempts, you know, however misguided, there is an element of truth in there. Those poets are talking about that we're God's offspring. You know, the Greek poet would be talking about Zeus, that you're Zeus's offspring. Yeah, of course, there's, there's no truth in that. But there's an element, aspect of truth in that we are. Yeah, we are God's offspring. So it's acknowledging people's sometimes misguided attempts to find truth that actually they've caught a glimpse whether it's in a film or just in their interests or in their undertaking of some sense of spiritualism, they've caught a glimpse of something that we can use as a, as a conversation starter. But what's really important here is that Paul didn't state and didn't accept that there was the real truth, that they had found the truth. You know, they had caught a glimpse, they had caught an aspect but you don't find you do, the, the real truth we have to uphold is in a relationship of Jesus, acknowledging who he is and being convicted by the Holy Spirit. That is where the truth is. People sometimes can find, as I said, a glimpse or an aspect. You know, some, pe- some people over the years, have there's a, a strain of theology called natural theology. Natural theology basically meaning that you can find God in ordinary nature, in ordinary um, experiences. It's based on your own reason and logic. You can reason to a point um, to come, you know, you can, through reason and logic, you can get to God. And through looking at the natural world, you can find God there. No, no, friends. We know. That God is found and the truth is found and salvation is found in acceptance of who Jesus is and through divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. So on one end, one scale, we use cultural references, acknowledging people, sometimes misguided efforts to find and to catch a glimpse of truth, but never compromising the, uh, the foundation of the real truth, which is divine, which is Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay. Last thing that Paul, Paul did do, he used their style and approach. You know, he was talking to philosophers, to logical people. He reasoned with them. He debated with them. You know, we've got, and this is going back to the second point around showing people that you know them, talking them. You know, are they, you know, emotive people? Are they more logical people? Are they more relational people? And adapting your style, your approach, the, the certain aspects of the Bible you may bring in and talk to, but understanding that approach that works best for that individual, for that group of people. But again, there is a danger of compromise here. So Paul uh, was speaking to highly intellectual, logical people but he still spoke about the resurrection. He still spoke about the resurrection, and they sneered at him. He spoke about the resurrection, even though as soon as he started down that train of thought, he would lose half the room. Half the room would think, well, what? I'm not listening to a man who believes in resurrection. Like, come on, I'm not listening to, to this person if he believes in stuff like that. He didn't preach a palatable gospel. 
He didn't preach a palatable gospel that was easy to comprehend given their intellectual and logical worldview. You know, I'll tell a story. So, speaking to a very logical woman at work, highly intellectual, and, and she's, she was going to church um, when she was younger, but then dropped out because she just could not, she could not um, ally what she kind of, the good things about Christianity and just all of that supernatural stuff. And, you know, in conversations, you know, that's still something that she um, still upholds. You know, she kind of understands and, and, and will uphold that there must be some intelligent design to the world because that's more logical than just it happening by, uh, by blind chance. There's got to be some sort of intelligent design. And she believes that Jesus existed and was a good man and spoke some really great things. And actually, you know, she can't really ally either that someone speaking so such mad, uh, such uh, wise things, he, he kind of must be who he, he say was. She can't, she can't uphold that he was a madman or, or, or a liar or anything like that. But for her, a massive stumbling block is the miracles that he performed and the supernatural stuff that she sees in the Bible and that she knows of the Bible, and, and, and really his resurrection. Now, one response could be to her, well, it's fine, it's fine. There's, 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 a, lot, there's a lot of Christians who don't believe in the supernatural, who just believe that it's a metaphor, who believe that Jesus' resurrection was metaphorical. So it's fine, you know, you, you give, you, you know, we can, you know, let's do this. Let's pray that you give your life to Jesus and you can hold that belief. Or you could go down the route of saying, well, actually, a lot of Christians just believe that that supernatural stuff only happened for a period of time. You know, just for a really important period of history where God needs to get stuff done. But we don't believe that miracles, supernatural stuff like that happens today. That's preaching a, what I term a palatable gospel that is easy for that person to hear. It's dishonest. It's, it's going down the line of just tell, tell them anything they want to hear just so they sign on the dotted line. It's like we're not in that, we're not in that business. But we're praying. You know, a response be, look, I know, and, and it, this is un, it's completely understandable that this is a stumbling block for you. and I don't want to diminish it. But I want to pray for you because I believe in a God of miracles. I believe in a God who moves supernaturally today. I believe in a resurrected Jesus. And I believe that he wants to show you and to reveal himself to you in a powerful way. And you pray that prayer. And to be honest, friends, the rest is up to God. It's, you know, it's just God's business. I'll just I'll just end on on this I'll end on this. Um, the funny thing with this with this passage in Athens is is some people some commentators have proposed that Paul failed, that it was a failure. Um, there's no real recorded mention of a church set up in Athens soon after Paul was there. Um, it's not really mentioned again in Acts. There's no epistle. There's no letter to the church in Athens. So people have proposed actually it was a failure on Paul's part. Well, if we take away that actually 
it was a success that he, he would just got off without any punishment. You know, if we go down the line of he was in a court and he managed to walk away, that in itself is a success. But that's not really Paul's, um, Paul's choice, if there was a church set up there or not. We could, we, because of what we know of Paul, and because of what we can read, Paul did the right things. He had the right approach. He was where God wanted him to be. He was with the right people. He was doing it in, in God's strength and not his own. So if the church wasn't planted, and if there was no discernible fruit straight away, what's nothing to do with Paul? That's God's business. It's God's business. And I just want to leave that with you. You know, of all of with evangelism, with talking about Jesus, trying to cast light into people's lives, that's what we're called to do. That's our business. Sowing liberally, talking faithfully and diligently about Jesus to the whosoever. And where we see the harvest, harvesting diligently as well. But when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of, of, of church growth or, bringing visit, or visitors being saved, as long as we're doing all of that faithfully and in God's strength, that fruit is God's business. So let's not burden ourselves with it. Let's not worry ourselves with that to a degree because that is God's business. Last week, there was testimonies from, uh, from Pam, from Helen, from Lizzie that just, just powerfully just showed just preaching the gospel just regularly and simply to people. That is what we're called to do. And I think Ardra made uh, an observation of, you know, people have a choice of who we're talking. When we present the gospel, people then have a choice to accept it or to reject it, to live their life saying, my will or thy will. But we have a choice as well. As Christians, we have a choice. Do we want to be people with spirits of provocation? Do we want to be Christians, followers of Christ, soldiers of Christ, that want to see churches grow, see lives transformed, see light being shone into people's lives? Or are we happy just doing, doing what we can, being comfortable, not wanting to stretch, not wanting to put a foot wrong, not wanting to... Um, not wanting to be in any sense of any position of challenge or uncertainty. Now I say this and I've said this whole preach is to me first and foremost. It's to me first and foremost. But we have a choice as well. And it, and it ultimately boils down to, as Christians, do we, in, in this regard, talking about the gospel and reaching out to people, do we say God's will because we know what God's will is it's, and it's tough to, <laughs> tough to follow but we know what God's will is for his Christians and for his children in this regard for evangelism 
Do we say thy will or my will?